Um, I don't know whether you have been in a situation where you're sitting there and you're going to preach and somebody else is preaching before you and uh, they've almost preached the sermon that you're going to preach and I felt that with uh, Pastor Smith this morning. We, we did not collude in what we were going to speak about but um, he's been dwelling on a lot of things that I'm going to be giving to you and it put me in mind of the first conference I ever spoke at I think it was in 19, be about 1985, and I'd been invited to Northern Ireland uh, to speak at this Port Stewart convention. And it was kind of a Victorian situation. There were, there were two sermons every night, and um, Alistair Begg was with me, and we all had to sit on the platform in, throughout all the servant sermons in the same seat. And in the hotel in the morning, when Alistair was about to preach, uh, Dr. Craig, the chairman said can you tell me brethren what you're going to preach on today so there's a the other preacher with Alistair that night was a Dr. J.G.S.S. Thompson an elderly man so he said um, I'm going to be preaching on Romans 12 1 and 2 and Dr. Craig the chairman said oh right so Alistair said I was going to preach on Romans 12 1 and 2 so the chairman said, oh, well, we can't have that. You can't both preach on the same text. So Alistair said to the old man, he said, well, I'm sure you've got more sermons up your sleeve than I have. <laughs> so so uh, Dr. Thompson said, yes, well, I'll, I'll spend the afternoon. So when we get to the, the meeting in the evening, I'm sitting next to Alistair, and um, Dr. Thompson gets up. Oh, no, Alistair got up and preached on Romans 12, 1 and 2. Wonderful sermon. Then they had a hymn, and then the next sermon. And uh, Dr. Thompson got up and he said, well, I was going to preach on Romans 12, 1 and 2, but I was persuaded not to. But in the light of what I've just heard, I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> and, and, the, and the two sermons absolutely gelled into one. So I hope that our two sessions, Jeff, will gelled into one. Um, and some of you, uh, the reason I'm doing these sessions is because um, Bart Carlson was at the Banner of Truth Conference a few years ago when I gave them there. And there are a number of you who have been to that conference and seen and heard what I was doing there. And um, all I can say to you is that I have biblical warrant for repeating it, and I'll read it to you. For this reason, says Peter, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. So, uh, you'll hear it again. Well, most of you will know that there is a beautiful balance in Scripture that draws a line from the highest points of doctrine down to the lowliest areas of Christian duty. And the glory of a true biblical theology is that it's designed by God to produce godliness of character in those ordinary, practical areas of our daily lives. And shortly after I was converted, I discovered that whilst my regeneration had brought me into this wonderful fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it had also brought me into a relationship of contention with Satan. And I quickly discovered that the hardest battle 
that we can face is the battle with our own anxieties and with our own discouragements. Those times when our hearts fail for reasons that seem to be inexplicable. Things are no different than they were. Situations and responsibilities are no different. Relationships with family and with friends and with your church are no different. Yet for some strange and mysterious and inexplicable reason, we are different. And all of us at some time will have a fainting fit. At times when we feel that you can't go on and you become downhearted and you're discouraged. And this is something that is addressed a number of times in scripture. If you think of the Upper Rome discourses by our Lord as he's seeking to encourage these discouraged disciples concerning his departure from them. Then you have the whole of the Olivet Discourse at the end of Matthew 24, designed to encourage the disciples and us when we find ourselves in the midst of all the developments that are taking place and will yet come upon the world scene. Most of the epistles in the New Testament, especially the pastoral epistles, the epistle to the Hebrews, and as Jeff pointed out in 2 Corinthians, are wonderful examples of how you can face up to and deal with discouragement. And then you will recall that our Lord expounded the Old Testament scriptures to the two on the Emmaus Road so that they may no longer be discouraged. And he was showing them that the Old Testament has a greater purpose than simply recording true and accurate historical events. And throughout the whole of the Old Testament, there are circumstances and situations which teach us the principles of conduct and of action, which are extremely relevant for all the circumstances that we find in our lives. Because those Old Testament scriptures are pointing us to the glories of Christ and to the glories of the gospel. And if, if that was not so, what's the point of reading and studying the Old Testament? So I'm confining myself in these two sessions, today and tomorrow, to two Old Testament passages in the hope that they may be of help and encouragement. And you will remember that in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to run the Christian race in such a way that they will obtain the prize. And as he is doing that, he crystallizes the historical events in the book of Numbers. So for that reason, I would like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Numbers and the 20th chapter, Numbers chapter 20. And I'll begin reading at verse 14 and read into chapter 21 and verse 4. Numbers 20 and verse 14. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh a city on the edge of your border. Please, let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. 
we will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Then Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway, and if I owe my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. Uh, now, uh, well, now the, let me read on to chapter 21, verse 4. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron thirty days. The king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Now, if you, like me, enjoy visiting art galleries, and if I go to London, I go to the National Portrait Gallery or the National Gallery, you may find it interesting or fascinating not to study the paintings themselves, but also to look at the frames in which those works of art are placed. And you'll find that many frames are delicately carved, gold-plated, gold, gold, gold leaf, others simply a, a plain strip of wood, ebony, and some works of art have the framework painted into the actual picture itself. Now, I don't know whether you've ever given much attention to that if you're visiting an art gallery, if you've given any attention to the frames in which they are placed. Looking at you, I have a feeling that none of you do. (laughs) But the artist Matisse described the four sides of a frame as the most important part of a picture. And he knew how important it was to do that because the frame directs your eyes away from the wider setting which is usually the wall itself on which it's hanging, and it forces your attention to the image which the frame is enclosing. 
So the frame is the immediate setting which helps you to see the hidden features and the beauties in the painting. So let me remind you of the broader framework or the wider setting of this chapter. And you're all aware of the details of what happened to Moses and the Israelites in the exodus from Egypt. And just prior to these incidents recorded in Numbers, the Israelites had been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai. And those 40 years were a divine discipline as a result of their being unwilling to obey the Lord's command to go in and possess the land of Canaan. And the majority of the spies had been against going forward. And they won the hearts and the minds of the people, despite the protest and the challenge of Joshua and Caleb. And the Lord then turned them back. And for nearly 40 years, they have wandered in the wilderness until a whole generation has died off. So that's the broader setting. Now, when you look at the more immediate framework or setting in chapter 21 and verse 4, we are told they then journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very impatient or discouraged because of the way. So after 40 years wandering in the wilderness with all the frustrations, all the difficulties of that land, the land of promise is yet withheld from them. Now, most of you, brethren, have seen a good deal in our day of the migration of thousands of people from one country to another. So it's not difficult to imagine the kind of sense of anticipation and expectancy and excitement that the Israelites must have felt when they were in reach of the land. Now, all of that is the setting for their discouragement that you see in verse 4. So within that framework, let me look with you, first of all, at some of the circumstances that can lead to discouragement, and then some of the effects that arise from discouragement, and then some considerations in dealing with discouragement, and if the clock beats me, I'll try and continue later on. Well, I want to try and to apply these things as we proceed. So, first of all, some of the circumstances that contributed to their discouragements at this point. I could list a number, but there are a whole variety of them, but I want to mention two in the hope that we can learn some helpful lessons from them. First of all, there was an unexpected obstruction to their progress, and then there were unforeseen difficulties about their pathway. So the unexpected obstruction to their progress we read in chapter 20 and verses 14 to 17. And Moses, with great diplomacy and sensitivity, sends messengers to the king of Edom with a very polite and very brotherly message. They were to relate to the king some of the trials that they'd come through, how they cried to the Lord, he delivered them from Egypt, and now they find themselves on the border of Edom. And Moses appeals to Edom on the basis that despite all of their appearances, God's hand is still on these people of Israel. And he pleads for a safe passage through his country. He assures the king of Edom that they will not do anything that was detrimental to the land. They won't even drink their water. But those assurances were in vain. And the Edomites refused permission 
to cross their borders. And as a consequence, they had to go on a long, circuitous route. So you can imagine the disappointment and the frustration after 40 years in the wilderness. Now, it was obviously something that Moses and the Israelites felt very, very deeply because it was so unexpected. Because after all, Edomite or the Edomites were related to the Israelites. So surely of all people, they would have given them some help. And so it's the unexpectedness of certain happenings in our lives that can make it very, very difficult for understand and which can create a great deal of discouragement. How often we've been discouraged because of the attitudes of those people we thought were our brethren. Psalm 55, it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor it is one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. Now that's David who is speaking. We don't know who he's speaking about. But think about David's disappointment with Absalom. Think of the disappointment that King Saul was to Samuel. Think of Paul with Demas, who has forsaken him. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ with Judas Iscariot. And when John in his gospel refers to Judas Iscariot, he stresses Judas, one of the twelve. Judas, one of the twelve. They had all shared together as brethren. Let me remind you of what happened in the early church. The day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit were behind them. The Lord was adding daily, such as should be saved, to the church. A new humanity has been formed. It's taking a spiritually bankrupt world by storm. Everywhere, people's lives were being transformed. So in chapters 2 and 3 of Acts, we are told that the Lord added to the church. And then very soon, that addition is replaced by multiplication. And at the same time... The great enemy of the gospel was seeking to wreak havoc in the church by using various strategies. Those strategies took three forms. There was persecution, there was hypocrisy, and there was division. There was persecution from outside the church, there was hypocrisy within the church, and there was division within the church. And most of you will realize, remember really, that a complaint was made in the early church that the widows from a Grecian background were being neglected in the distribution of the benevolent funds of the church. Now, whether or not that complaint was justified was not the issue. And in your pastoral work, you'll always realize that the issue is not the issue. The issue was that it was creating a storm of bitterness within the church. They used the word neglected. That's a, quite a revealing word. It shows that the Grecians were believing the worst. And when Christians begin to believe the worst and not the best, we've already lost the Christ-like spirit of love. 
And you can imagine what a disappointment it must have been. Well, the apostles dealt with that problem in a wonderful spirit of grace and love. They appointed deacons to deal with it. And all of the deacons, according to their names, had a Grecian background. So you can't be more peacemaking and gracious and wise than that. Let that close their mouths. So Israel were discouraged because of the lack of sympathy from Edom, a brother. And a crucial passage when you're considering that kind of unexpected discouragement is, as Jeff has pointed out, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Some of the Corinthians were denigrating the very man who, under God, had been the means of their conversion. As well as being an apostle, he was a brother in Christ. And the Corinthians questioned his apostolic authority. They accused him of being devious. They said that he was unreliable. He says one thing, he says another. He said he would come and visit us, and he, he hasn't done that. And they were putting the worst possible construction upon what he had said. It's very interesting, isn't it, in a fallen world that people are often inclined to question and misread and deliberately twist things that we say so that it means something else. And the Corinthians were particularly geniuses at that kind of thing. They were not the first and they're not the last to do so, as you also can testify. It was constantly being done. And in the days in which we live, it's done on social media. And you can be quoted on social media. And perhaps one of the most effective means of creating discouragement in the ministry is the, the weapon of insidious criticism from unexpected sources. You never expect it to come from that particular direction or from that particular person. And sometimes when those who are most desirous of calling us into a work they can become the most ardent to eject us out of a work. I'm reluctant to say very much about myself, but I need to say a few things uh, to illustrate certain things and maybe to encourage you. I, I was in a small church in southern Scotland for 13 years, very small congregation at first. But then towards the end of that, for about a year... I had men come to see me and ask if I would go to a large Baptist church in the city of Glasgow. They kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And eventually, I responded. I took advice. Sinclair Ferguson and Eric Alexander were in Glasgow. They felt that I should come and that there would be a Reformed Baptist church in the city. I would have no other elders but I would have 16 deacons. So I was the sole elder. And things went well for about five years. And the church began to increase and to be blessed. And then the insidious criticisms came. I deliberately never mentioned Calvin's name, and I never mentioned the five points in all that time. And I invited Sinclair along one evening on a Saturday to speak at our, our fellowship. And afterwards, one of the senior men in the church who had pleaded with me to come to that church spoke to Sinclair. And I didn't know he'd done this, but Sinclair told me the next day and asked, what's going on? 
I said, what do you mean? Oh, well, this man is really talking about you. And he said, Mr. Hughes may be reformed, but this church is not reformed. So I was getting a sense of what was already going on. I maybe come back to that. But sooner or later, in the work of the ministry, you will receive a hard knock. And some of you will get so many hard knocks that you won't expect anything else. But those hard knocks are of different kinds. Some of them arise from the circumstances of life, the inevitable conditions in which we work, and no blame can be attached to them. Accidents happen, mistakes can be made, disappointments arise, and they deal us a hard blow. But they are not the hardest blows that can come to us. There is no ill will behind them. It's nobody's fault. It's a a wound, it can be a deep wound, but it's a clean wound without any pus or any poison in it. And eventually it will heal in time. But the most difficult wounds are the ones that often refuse to heal. And they can take a constant toll on your health and on your strength. And these are the wounds that are deliberately given. The thrust was meant to be a thrust. The injury was consciously and cruelly aimed at you. And these are the wounds that hurt, they have venom in them, they burn, they throb and they fester. And I have seen men broken under criticism. I've literally known of a man's wife being carried out of the manse in a straitjacket because of what was happening to her husband. When I went through a difficult time in that church... I saw my wife on the verge of a nervous breakdown. How many pastor's children have been disillusioned and repelled by the treatment that their parents have received at the hands of a congregation? And many a noble life has been blasted as a result of being the receiving end of cruel criticism. And the hardest part is when it comes from those who have been near and dear to us, our brethren and our sisters in Christ. Now, brethren, it's not easy to deal with that kind of situation. It's not easy to face up to and speak about the wrongs that have been done to you personally without feeling angry or bitter. But from my experience, try to know yourself. And I would say that there are two dangers that you need to avoid when you're under that kind of pressure. And and speaking about myself, the first is avoid the danger of self-pity. If you start feeling sorry for yourself, you will go down into a vortex that's very difficult to get out of. And the other danger is try to avoid having a bitter spirit. And I have to confess, I had a bitter spirit for some time making my confessions here, I think it was Jeff Smith on Sunday morning who spoke about an anonymous pastor, but it was me, feeling angry against God. Guard yourself against a bitter spirit. Now, here in Numbers, it was simply non-cooperation on the part of Edom at first, but then they became warlike with an impressive show of strength. Now, what these Israelites would have requested would have cost the Edomites nothing. They were simply looking for help and sympathy. All that they received was rebuffs and refusal. Edom refused. And that enmity had deep roots. 
And many of you will know that the progenitor of Edom is Esau. And Esau and Israel had various differences in the past. But God never forgot what Edom did here. Because it's referred to a number of times in the subsequent history of the Old Testament. If you simply go to the book of Obadiah, there is a scathing denunciation of Edom reminding them of how they always stood aloof. They were always creating difficulties for the people of God. They were always showing themselves to be perverse. But their downfall came. And one lesson here is when you are discouraged by people who are brethren in Christ, don't rush in and try to justify yourself. Sometimes... Silence is eloquent. Do you remember when Aaron's sons were judged for offering up strange fire? And Aaron saw them killed. There's just one little sentence. Aaron held his peace. Aaron said nothing. There are times when you just say nothing. And your silence is eloquent. And for all of their faults, these Israelites were still precious to God. And for anyone to oppose them and to despise them was to ask for trouble. So a good verse for you to remember at such times when you're under this kind of pressure is Isaiah 54 and verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, says the Lord. And remember that God is not mocked, and whoever touches the apple of his eye will be judged. He can chastise his people, but woe betide anybody else who does them harm or who shows them any ill will. And he did chastise Israel, and he punished Israel, but he did so because he had a care for them. He would never let them go. He would never allow others to harm them with impunity. And that really is an evidence of the grace of God. So let me point out another lesson that you can learn here. Moses didn't force the issue with Edom. And that's something I want to stress. In some situations which cause you to be discouraged, there is a time to submit and to refuse to stand firm and to say nothing. Even if those who oppose us are clearly not of God and not of grace and they are not in the right. Brethren, listen to their criticism. Listen to their criticism. And remember that sometimes your enemies can be your best friends. Because your enemies will tell you what your friends won't tell you because they want to retain your friendship. And so they don't say anything. Listen to your critics. If the criticism is valid, then try to ignore it and carry on. But if the criticism is not, I'm sorry, if it's not valid, carry on. But if it's valid, do something about it and try to put it right. 
I was listening to something about Alexander McLaren, who was a Scottish pastor and theologian. And a fellow minister came to him in great distress because another fellow minister had told this man what people were saying about him. And Alexander McLaren was quite disturbed and angry because of what was happening to his friend. And he tried to comfort him. But then the friend did something that he really shouldn't have done. But some people frequently do. And the friend said, and they're saying the same things about you. They're saying the same things about you. And McLaren's face changed significantly. He never said a word for a few minutes. And then he went out of the room and was away for quite some time. And when his friend, when he came back, his friend said to him, Are you all right? Are you okay? McLaren replied, I needed to get down before God and see if these things were true. Guard your own integrity. Listen to the criticism. It's vital to maintain your integrity before God. Ask yourself, is it true? And there will be times when you want to retaliate and you want to answer back to your critics. And sometimes you would like to peck their eyes out. But that is not a response of grace. You must learn to bow before the God who has said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now let me invite you to turn to Jeremiah, if you've got your Bible available to you. And uh, chapter 9, I've just been still studying through Jeremiah in my devotions, but I came across this, which I thought was helpful. In Jeremiah chapter 9, take a time to find it. Right, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep and day, might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travellers that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And here in verse 1, Jeremiah is weeping for the sins of the people, and he's identifying himself with them, and he's taking these things personally to heart. But then in verse 2, he seems to be full of revulsion, and he wants to leave them altogether. And the problem in Jeremiah's day was because his teaching was challenging the status quo. His teaching was challenging the existing state of affairs. And that is when opposition arises in the work of the ministry. Because when the teaching of the word of God makes it clear that things are wrong in the status quo... People are not prepared to change their attitudes. They're not prepared to change their activities and so on. They don't want to conform to the word of God. When I went to that church in Glasgow, I pointed out to these men, if I come here, I will not become involved in crusade evangelism. And in my absence, they agreed to engage in a crusade evangelism. 
It's a very difficult thing. I didn't challenge it because I knew it would come and go. And you've got to choose your battles. But you've got to listen to what's happening. And if your sensitive spirit is grieved, as Jeremiah's was with a sense of revulsion, because people don't want to change in the church. And that is a big problem. That can create a lot of problems. And there are times in the ministry when that happens to you. During my difficulties in that church, I'm hesitant to say these things, but I feel it's helpful. I went down to that church for a whole year, and I knew that when I walked in those doors, I would be the most loved and the most hated person in that building at one and the same time. Some people would have given me their kidney if I needed it. Others would have packed my case right away. And at that time, by that time, I had conducted 137 funerals in that church. I was a sole elder. I was absolutely exhausted. I was worn out. And there could be times of exhaustion and the unresponsiveness of certain people. And your only emotion is that you want to escape from the ache and from the pain. And there are times when you come up the pulpit steps and you'd rather be away from there. Now, brethren, there's nothing wrong in feeling like that. It's something of the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who can be grieved away by the sins of God's people. And that kind of thing has relevance in many different circumstances in the service of God. It's significant, if you have time to study it, to see the particular sin of God's people in Jeremiah's day was the sin of slander. And Jeremiah discovered that there was a campaign of slander being mounted against him. It developed into a plot to destroy him because of his faithfulness to the word of God. And that kind of thing happened to me that I was out of the ministry for a whole year. So how do you react and respond? Well, my reaction at that time was to ask myself the question, before I left the church, why am I here? And I was going through 2 Corinthians 5. And the answer to that question was twofold. Why am I here in this place? I'm here for him. And I'm here for them. And I think I put it on two postcards at the foot of my bed. I woke up every morning for him and for them. And that's the whole theme of 2 Corinthians. Read it. Encourage yourself. There is a time to submit and to refuse and to stand firm. However, there are times in discouragement when you need to do something else. You remember in Acts 13 when Paul and Barnabas were opposed in Antioch, they shook off the dust from their feet and they went to Iconium. But in Iconium, when they were opposed once again, they did the opposite. They remained there a long time, preaching the word of God. So there is a great need in your times of discouragement like that, that you have discernment to seek good advice from other people. Go to trusted friends. Keep looking to the Lord for direction. Now, the refusal on the part of Eden would obviously be a bitter disappointment to the Israelites. It seemed as if everything that they were longing for has been snatched away from them. There's an old redemption hymn. Not now, but in the coming years, 
It may be in the better land we'll read the meaning of our tears. We'll read, and then sometimes we'll understand why what we long for most of all is snatched, I'll I'll read it here, eludes so oft our eager hand, why hopes are dashed and castles fall. Up there, sometime, we'll understand. Now look at Numbers chapter 21 and the first three verses. It seems at this point there is an advance into the promised land and it follows on from the story of Edom and the news would obviously get round that Israel was on the move. Now in the encounter with Edom, Moses simply reacted with a spirit of non-retaliation. But on this occasion with the king of Arad, it was a head-on conflict that couldn't be avoided. That then seems to bring the Israelites to their senses and to recognize that they're in a warfare. So they cry to God, believing that he could give them victory. Now there are times in discouragement when you are brought to your senses and you are reminded of just how fragile you really are. And it seems here that there was a renewed spirit, a new attitude to things, so much so, you'll notice in verse 2, they make a vow of commitment. Now, although there may appear to be an element of bargaining with the Lord, nevertheless, it was rejuvenation, it was a revival of a spirit of determination. They were showing that there was no uncertainty, and anything that was contrary or stood against the will of God was to be dealt with and destroyed. And then we read that the Lord responded to their voice, and he gave them a significant victory. However, immediately following the unexpected obstructions to their, their progress, their renewed consecration, they experience unforeseen difficulties about the pathway. That's where you come into verse 4 of chapter 21. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go round the land of Edom. So the people became very impatient or discouraged because of the way. It may have been the length of the journey, constantly for 40 years, asking themselves to question, how long, how long, how long? We are ready to occupy the land of Canaan. And here are these unexpected oppositions and difficulties. And to a lesser or greater degree, all kinds of battles like that you will find in your life and in your ministry. There is no ideal circumstance or conditions in which you work for Christ. It's always against opposition. And it's in the teeth of opposition that the work has to be done. It involves hardship, sacrifice, suffering, sweat, toil and tears. You're ministering in a world that is either antagonistic to your message or simply indifferent. A world that has no fear of God before their eyes. And you can be easily discouraged when you see little fruit for your labours. And you have an increasing sense of futility or even despair. And it's not just Isaiah who cries out who has believed our report. You have been sent to minister to a world that is in darkness, but it believes that it's enjoying the light. It's in chains, but it calls that chaining or that captivity freedom. It's a world that is spiritually sick, but it doesn't see any need for a physician. It's a world that has lost its senses. Do you not find that you're living in a world that is increasingly trivializing the serious issues of life and at the same time solemnizing the trivial things in life. 
how many times unimportant people and inconsequential people speak about, we have a program on the television in the UK, Strictly Come Dancing, or The Voice of America, whatever it is, Great Talents of America. And they look at these things, it's awesome. Awesome. Trivial things that they are treating serious. And you are dealing with these people who oppose the message and the messenger. And they can be simply dismissive. And the door will be shut in your face. The tract will be thrown to the ground. The invitation will be firmly refused. And that can happen. And when it happens, you have to deal with the implications of your preaching when you introduce it into certain situations. Do you remember Daniel and his friends? Wherever they went, there was trouble and commotion. Not because of their personalities. It's because of what they stood for and what they represented. Remember what happened in the Acts of the Apostles. The lives of individuals and of whole communities and sometimes whole cities were thrown into an uproar. And the testimony of the the unbelieving world is these that have turned the world upside down have come here also. And sometimes through your ministry, and a person is converted, they may be the only person who is converted in a family. And that family becomes a battleground for them and for you. And when unbelievers come and sit under the ministry of the word of God, sometimes they feel worse than they were before. And they can't enjoy the ordinary comforts of life. And they often don't know why. Because a battle is starting within them. And sometimes they can be deeply offended. I mentioned this when I spoke on this at the Banner Conference. I had a a very wealthy, almost aristocratic gentleman that started coming to our church. And uh, he owned a number of businesses. He'd uh, been a, he and his wife had been Monte Carlo racing drivers, and um, she'd gone to finishing school in Switzerland. They had this magnificent country estate. And he started coming and sitting. And one Sunday, he brought a whole company of people with him. And as they were going out, they said to me, We can't believe that he's worshipping in this church. And they went home to his house. I'll, I'll say the name. It was Daldork House. And in the evening, he came back. And I was preaching on John the Baptist before Herod. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, after the service, he literally pinned me against the wall in the, in the, the vestry. And he said, who's been talking to you? Who's been speaking to you about private conversations in my home? And I had to say, nobody's speaking to me, but somebody's speaking to you. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) off he went. And I said to my wife, we won't say anything more about them. On the Wednesday evening, he phoned me. I said, who is it? He said, I can tell you his name, James McInnes. I said, oh, how are you? He said, well, I'm phoning to tell you I'm a changed man. For years, I put things down to coincidence. He said, when you preached that sermon, it was as if you were in my room listening to the conversation. No coincidence. I've come to faith in Christ. 
I, I mentioned that at the Banner Conference. He phoned me the next day. He'd been listening in. He said, I'm still your friend. And he's, and he's still going on in the things of God in the church there. That's going back many years. So sometimes when you're preaching to unbelievers, their, their problems can multiply. And then if they are converted, they can bring all their problems with them. And that can be a very difficult thing to handle. I was thinking about that when we were talking about discipline. I had another man who came in when I was in Glasgow, a man who came in who committed every sin in the book. He went into the psychiatric ward in the Southern General Hospital. And I went in and I thought, what shall I give him to read? And I picked up a Victorian copy of Spurgeon's All of Grace. And I told him to read that. And he was wonderfully converted in that psychiatric ward. Came out, came to me, I want to become a member of the church. I said, well, okay, we'll have some classes and so on. He said, but I've got to sort some things out first. I said, well, what what have we got to sort out? Well, he said, you see my wife who comes to me, comes with me? I said, yes. He said, really, she's not my wife. He said, I married her, but I was already married. I've committed bigamy. I said, well, you know that's a criminal offence. Yes, he said, we've got to sort it out. So I said, well, you better go and speak to her. Ten o'clock at night, they come to my door, him and his wife. And I'm trying to comfort her, saying, now, Violet, he's been converted, and he, he wants to put things right with the Lord. So Andy said to me, Pastor, Violet has something to say to you. I said, what's that, Violet? She'd done the very same thing with him. She was married, and she married him. So they both committed bigamy. So how are you going to deal with that problem? And now you've got a believer and an unbeliever. It took a whole year to sort out. Well, we tried to sort it out. But these are some of the problems that you're getting yourself into. And you can't just put them into a filing cabinet at the end of the day. You have got to deal with that, and you sleep with that, and you eat that. These are the problems that you find when you're preaching the gospel. My first ministry, a lady came to me, wonderful Christian. My husband will not let me pray. When I get down to kneel at my bed, he lifts me up and puts me into bed. What am I to do? How do you deal with that? Another man, his wife, she would take his Sunday suit and she would put it in the bath of water to stop him coming to church. Then she would puncture his tires on his cycle. Well, how are you going to deal with those things? It's not just being a preacher. It's being a pastor. You've got to deal with these issues. And they can present a great deal of discouragement. So, remember, brethren, I've got seven minutes. God has a plan and a purpose and a strategy for your life. And in all of these things, he's doing something with you. Can I urge you that you get to know as much as you can what God's strategy is for your life? What God's strategy is. Examine yourself, listen to your friends, faithful friends who can help you. But try to know that you are where God wants you to be. Because he has a plan and a purpose. He is not a God who is remote from you. He's a living God who is working in your life. 
even when you don't know it, even when you can't understand it. And on the other hand, there is a devil who is also working in your life, and he has plans, and he has strategies, and he has purposes for you. He wants to frustrate your strategy. He wants to frustrate your plans. So you have to deal with those tensions, and then you've got your own indwelling sin to deal with as you're worshiping, as you're serving God. And that's why your life is constantly a battleground. And there are times when you just feel, I can't go on. And I remember when I was caring for my wife in her last illness, and um, just thought, I can't go on. I can't go on. How long is... And I remember getting up from my wife's bedside and I went into the study and I wrote in my Bible never be tempted to doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light but you will be tempted in the dark to doubt God's faithfulness God's sovereignty what he's doing how long so look to God realize that he has a purpose for you He's brought you out of darkness. He's married you to Christ. He has a purpose which is beyond description. And he will reach to the ends of the earth and to the depths of your experiences. And he will work all things together for your good and for his glory. So do not lose heart. Ask God to give you a greater spirit of faith that you might keep on going on. And that lasts until you go to glory. And when Paul says to Timothy, avoid youthful lusts that war against your soul, youthful lusts are not confined to youth, believe me. There are temptations in old age. And some of you will say, oh well, I'm not, I'm not tempted in that area of pornography. Do you know why you're not tempted in that area of pornography? Because God prevents it. Because if you were, you would fall. So don't think that everything's rosy in this area or that area. God knows you more than you know yourself. And God also knows how much you can take. And there is more resources in you than you could imagine. So leave it to God and do your rest. I've finished. Shall I close in prayer? Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we bow before you and bless you through all the changing scenes of our life, in its sorrows as well as in its joys. You have always been faithful. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. You exhort us to look to the rock from whence we were hewn and to the pit from whence we were dug. And we bless you and praise you for saving us and for keeping us. Be with us all. Wherever we are, the situation, the circumstances, help us to lift our eyes up to you Help us to see the brazen serpent as the Israelites were exhorted to do, that there is the answer, that we look to the cross. 
we remember the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that fountain which has been opened for our sin and for our uncleanness. And if I have said anything out of place, anything that was unworthy or unkind or sinful, O oh God, cleanse us, we pray. Be with us now as we share fellowship over our lunch. Help us to eat and to drink for your glory. Be with all whom we love, our families at home. Be with those who may think that they're being forgotten. Help them to know that they are not forgotten. Be with Warren as he goes over to his father. May he have that opportunity to see him for the last time. Hear our prayers, receive our thanks in our Saviour's worthy name. Amen. Amen.